Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Ian McNeely on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Reinventing Knowledge, From Alexandria to the Internet. The co-author of the book is Lisa Wolverton, and it's just come out from W.W. Norton. I've written on the history of media myself, and I have to say that I found uh, Ian's take on the topic extraordinarily refreshing and interesting. I studied the history of media technology, whereas uh, Ian and Lisa have focused on, I guess, what might be called media institutions. Media might be the wrong word. But in any event, uh, he and she deal with a number of institutions that have been important in the creation and dissemination of knowledge from uh, ancient Greece to the present. Uh, specifically, they are the library, the monastery, the university, the Republic of Letters, the disciplines, and the laboratory. Uh, it's a really interesting take on the topic, and I uh, found it uh, very refreshing and extraordinarily enlightening. It's, a, it's such a great pleasure to speak with uh, someone who is so well-versed in the topic. So it's quite obvious that I really enjoyed talking to Ian today, and I hope that you enjoyed the interview. Here it is. Hi, Ian. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Fine, thanks. Very well. You're in Oregon, is that correct? That's right, Eugene. And, and how is Eugene? Uh, it's a little cloudy right now, believe it or not, uh, yeah. but during the summer we usually have uh, quite nice weather. Yeah, actually I spent a uh, summer in Seattle once, uh-huh. and it, it was actually quite lovely. I, I, I liked, actually, I spent a summer in Seattle twice, and it was quite lovely. So, uh, no, here in Iowa we have heat and humidity. That's, that. <laughs> yeah, that's what we have. <laughs> so anyway, uh, let me just tell our listeners that we're happy to have um, Ian McNeely on the show today. Um, who has written a book with Lisa Wolverton called Reinventing Knowledge from Alexandria to the Internet. It's just come out from um, W.W. Norton, and uh, I've read the book, and I think it's really terrific. It's kind of a model for the way that popular history should be written, and I really look forward to talking to you about it. But first, why don't we start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, that is, where you were born and grew up and where you went to school and, you know, that kind of thing, just some biographical detail. Sure. Uh, I was born in Gainesville, Florida, which is uh, in some ways the Eugene of uh, the South, (laughs) uh, a university town in the middle of Florida. Uh, Really benefited, even though my folks weren't faculty members, from the proximity of the university. Um, And, you know, one of the sort of biographical bits that wound up very circuitously uh, inspiring the book was when I got my first computer, an Apple II Plus, Mm -hmm. in 1980, which had fully 64K of Mm -hmm. RAM and that seemed in those days to be kind of miraculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I started out very much wanting to be a techie, uh, a computer guy, uh, to start a computer revolution of some kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somewhere along the way, late high school, early college, I got derailed from uh, from that and uh, wound up in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, any, any particular reason? Uh, I, I really, uh, at some point, I you know sort of absorbed the notion that uh, even a computer techie, especially computer techie, should be uh, you know well versed in the classics and sure. have a well-rounded liberal education. Uh, and then there was a uh, a class called Theory of Knowledge uh, in my high school as part of the International Baccalaureate program, where we read things like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh huh. Uh, let's see what else. The structure of scientific revolutions. Kind uh-huh. of sure. Yeah. Uh, that was my Nietzsche phase that I think many 16-year-olds, uh, uh, males especially, go through. I went around declaring God is dead. Is sure, dead? yeah, no, that was yeah, I remember that as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm still trying to figure out why adults read Nietzsche, but that's a separate. <laughs> yeah, we should talk more about that. Yeah, yeah, I do I, wonder about those things too. Okay, well, I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I came out of high school with really these twin interests. Um, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, I, we were supposed to read the Odyssey in this class, and I skipped it, and I made up for it during the summer before college by reading the, uh, the whole series of epic poems, the Odyssey, the Iliad, et cetera. Yeah. So 
Um, so, you know, I, once I got to college, I wandered into a couple of uh, history classes, one on 19th century Vienna, one on 19th century Europe generally, uh, one on ancient, uh, ancient Greece, and, and I really just sort of progressively got pulled away from the computing uh-huh. um, and uh, took a, a very long 20-year detour into, uh, into European and specifically German history, uh-huh. uh, which is what I was trained in. Yeah. Um, but a lot of those early interests that I had had in, uh, in computing and, and its implications for knowledge, uh, you know, uh, really came back uh, when I had the luxury of writing this book. Yeah. So then you went on to graduate school, and you you were trained you were trained as a German historian. Is that right? Where did you go to graduate school? Uh, the University of Michigan. Uh huh. And actually, it's funny. I spent some time in Ann Arbor. And who did you study with there? Uh, Jeff Ely and Kathleen Canning. Sure. Yeah. I've not. I don't think I've ever met Jeff Ely, but I. Knew, I mean, I know the department quite well because. Um, sure. Uh, Val Kivelson, who's a colleague of mine, is in the department. So. Uh huh. Yeah, and we're both Muscovite historians. Yeah. So. Um, that and then you wrote uh, a book about writing in Germany. Is that correct? Yeah, I, my sort of dissertation book was uh, about a, a group of these kind of uh, they were scribes. They were notaries public. Really had a, a very lowly position in the communities of southwestern Germany uh-huh. uh, after the French Revolution, but sort of manipulated their roles as amanuenses or as sort of uh, mouthpieces of of their clients to. Uh, stage all types of political machinations and try to get the Constitution restored and things right, like that. Right. Um, there was a way in which I tried to pursue these interests that I had in, in knowledge and information and writing uh, through, the, through the framework of German history, and that was uh, – that was the, the sort of first the first real book that I did. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, I mean, you make an interesting point in something that it, I think surprises most people, and that is that in the pre-modern world, people that wrote were uh, generally quite uh, – they were, they were of low class, that it was a yeah. servile occupation. It's true in Russia yeah. as well. I mean, they were really the lowest of the low. People yeah. who, yeah, I mean, they were, they were, they had the status of people that like cleaned buildings. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they just had this technical skill, but they yeah. weren't, were by no means in what we would think of as sort of highbrow intellectuals. Yeah. yeah, and I, I've always been motivated. I mean, going back to my personal biography, it's a kind of uh, a county in Gainesville. Uh, I, I've always been interested in, in the boundary between establishment intellectuals and those who have uh, pretensions and aspirations of being intellectuals. Yeah. Who don't quite make the grade status wise. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if I were to psychologize myself, I would say that. Uh, as, as, a, as a townie in a university town, uh, you know, I had a special sympathy for those, you know, sort of trying to, you know, yeah. bang, down, bang down the, cl- the campus walls. Yeah, no, exactly. No, the, I, the Ivy. Right. So um, maybe you could tell us how you came to write this book with Lisa. Um, well, after grad school, which I, I loved, I mean, Michigan was, you know, really the, the most intense intellectual community I'd, I'd ever experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to win a, a postdoc at the Harvard Society of Fellows, mm-hmm. which is a, a three-year postdoc that uh, imposes absolutely no requirements whatsoever, mm-hmm. uh, except that you attend three lavishly catered meals a week. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, on Monday nights they serve lots of alcohol, and they're like <laughs> crippling you for the rest of the week. Yeah, I've been I've uh, actually been there a couple times. I spent some time at Harvard, and I used to go oh, to okay. the dinners there. I know about the dinners and their famous wine cellar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I had ambitions of becoming the wine. My, wine uh, it's steward. funny because my my yeah, it's sort of a small my my friend, a very intelligent fellow named Curtis Perry, taught me to say that it's a. <clears throat> it, how does he put it? It's a large, well-stratified world that gives the appearance of being small. And yeah. so my uh, sister-in-law was actually the wine steward at, um, at the Society of Fellows, and my brother-in-law was there as well. He wasn't uh-huh. a member, but he was there with her. So yeah, I know about the Society. It's a good gig. Yeah, no, and, and far be it for me to, to look a gift horse in the mouth. No way. I, I, did, I did experience a certain loss of intellectual community there. No, I, yeah. And uh, it, it is very – I mean, the postdoc was originally designed in the 30s to release people from the rigors of the Ph.D. and the yeah. kind of career ladder that that implied. And, um, you know, I found that, that, uh, that this put, you know, now it's, it's simply a diversion from that or – an opportunity to sort of bolster your CV even more. Yeah. So um, I sort of got, uh, you know, as I say, very cryptically in the acknowledgments of the book, um, a critical perspective on academic institutions mm-hmm. from inhabiting, you know, what I like to call the kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the musty attic at the very top of the ivory tower. Yeah. 
Um, and that's where I met Lisa, my wife, who mm-hmm. happened to be the only other historian in the year that I came in. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And and we sort of shared a kind of uh, sense of being outsiders. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, grew up in in, in similar kind of middle class circumstances, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so through a, a long process of, of what really began uh, as a kind of uh, agonizing deprofessionalization for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, try, I I I decided with Lisa to to write a book that uh, kind of puts all academic institutions under under the, the microscope. Uh-huh. And, Hopefully, at the end of the process, you know, it was a kind of therapy for me because yeah. I, I realized that, um, you know, that, that uh, the travails of scholars have, you know, have been a lot, a lot greater and more important than than, than my uh, mm-hmm. my own story, uh, mm-hmm. you know, over looking back over the millennia. Uh-huh. And so, I, you know, I really came out of it with a very positive sense of um, not any one academic institution, but the whole sort of chain of them. That, that we talk about in the book. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a terrific perspective, actually. I found it very refreshing because, you know, it isn't so much the story of, and you make this very explicit, it isn't the story of great thinkers, it's the story of great institutions. And and I know that um, I have uh, had the opportunity to kind of look at world history in general, and I find world history very fascinating. And that's really the only way to look at world history, especially, you know, over the very long term, and that is some institutions prove so durable and are so attractive that they spread and other institutions are neither durable nor do they spread and the the five or six that you pull out in the book which we'll talk about in a second are obviously extraordinarily durable yeah um yes their inventors were you know i I don't know if their inventors were geniuses but um they certainly produced something that stood the test of time um so why why don't we begin by talking about the library where does the library come from uh, the library comes from ancient Greece. Uh, that's not a, 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 an unknown fact. But what I try to highlight is the way the library broke from the traditions, uh, even betrayed the traditions of classical Athens and mm-hmm. of uh, democratic Greece. So, you know, uh, we all know from our Plato and our Socrates that uh, oral debate and verbal philosophizing was the kind of coin of the realm, and, and you know, the the early philosophical discussions at Athens. Um, in the in the democratic uh, polis, the, the 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 political the city state. Is that how you pronounce it? I have no idea. Uh, so that's how <laughs> okay, it. that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> One of the tricks of doing kind of you know a 2,300-year history is you end up you know waltzing into fields that you you don't command every. Yeah, every oh boy. Yeah, no, tell um, me about it. Yeah, no, it's true. So, yeah, so I, I know what you mean. I, I had the occasion actually to read uh, in more detail than ever before Plato. And, you know, Plato didn't like writing very much. Right, right. He, he just didn't think it was a good way to do philosophy. Well, you know, he's on the fence because he or, or at least his followers ended up, you know, committing uh, these 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 debates to writing, making them look spontaneous, making them look yeah. like a, a written record of an oral discourse. Yeah. It's an interesting – you know, the dialogue, uh, which is the classic genre he you know, is known for, is, 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 is a brilliant – not only a hybrid form but also a clever piece of ideology mm-hmm. because it – it confronted the sophists, who were sort of pra- also practitioners of written scholarship mm-hmm. and oral debate, um, confronted them on their own terms and said, what you're doing is, is hucksterism, and what we're doing is, is nobler, mm-hmm. it's philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a generation or two later with Aristotle, uh, with Aristotle's followers, um, and this guy, this very interesting guy, Demetrius of Phaleron, who mm-hmm. ended up founding the library, uh, or uh, reputedly fa- founding the library at Alexandria, they make the shift whole hog um, from speech to writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, uh, they abandon the democratic ethos that had been associated with um, oral debate and, yeah. and sort of town square philosophizing in order to make Greek scholarship an agent of, of uh, empire. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a very interesting story, especially, you know, again, I, I have Plato fresh on my mind, and I'm just reminded of many passages in which he, I think at one point he even says, only a fool would write down. Only if you were really a philosopher, only a fool would write down one's thoughts, because yeah, yeah. in a written form, I think he says something like, "They they stand mute and they cannot respond, and yeah. anything that can't respond is is obviously of a lower intellectual level, you yeah. know, like that of a stone or something." <laughs> but so how did they? How did it? You know, again, in that world, a project to gather all of knowledge would involve a lot of memorizing, but the kind of thing that Demetrius did, 
and the librarians of Alexander was very different. How did they move from one to the other? Uh, no one really knows, uh, but you can you can sort of map out a, a converging kind of pattern of both intellectual and political reasons. You know, the intellectual reason had been uh, really started with Aristotle, who, who looks around at all these different schools, not only Plato's, uh, which he failed to become the leader of himself, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, was received in, um, but many others. And, you know, Aristotle solves this problem of, of contending schools by synthesizing all of their different uh, debates and points of view in, in written treatises, and the ones on, on constitutions and on... Uh, uh, on poetry and you know, every you know everything else that, that he's known. Uh, you have a great line I should I should say about about I think it's Aristotle's kitchen sink approach to philosophy. Yeah, that's yeah. very funny. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I mean, part of this is I I always hated Aristotle. Uh, I could never see what the big deal was, and um, and some of that I think shines through in the book. Yeah, I mean, there are those who find him. As I say, inspiringly capacious. You're yeah. able to to synthesize anything, and those who who. Um, like myself, who, who never found, you know, the, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to mm -hmm. everything type of approach as, as inspiring or <laughs> yeah. attractive as, as Plato. Right. Yeah. But it, it, it does set the intellectual stage for uh, for written synthetic scholarship, uh, mm -hmm. where you're, you're grouping and gathering information mm -hmm. um, and, and processing it. And, the, and then, you know, the big story, what the one that I find most interesting is, is Alexander the Great, is, mm -hmm. is the... You know, the Greek conquest and annexation of the Persian and Egyptian realms of the Mediterranean mm -hmm. and the Near East, and, and the need to somehow project cultural hegemony, Greek cultural hegemony over mm -hmm. that region, mm -hmm. uh, to turn it into a, its place where Greek is not necessarily the, the spoken language, but it is the language of, uh, of power. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and patronizing scholars, collecting information, uh, uh, reproducing texts, translating things like the Hebrew Bible, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the Septuagint um, mm -hmm. into Greek, are all means of, of, of solidifying empire. And basically, the way Alexander the Great's generals, like the Ptolemies, this, you know, portrayed themselves not as thugs or warlords, but as as patrons of learning, as as uh, those who would weld together this kind of Greek. Uh, led, um, led diasporic community mm -hmm. into a ruling class, and that mm -hmm. and that legacy lasts for centuries. Yeah, it does. I mean, it gives real meat to the notion of a Hellenic world. Yeah, that is a place you know all over the Eastern Mediterranean where people are doing something like scholarship or something we would recognize as scholarship in Greek that could only yeah. be done in Greek. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and I, I thought that was a very good good part of the book because it, it again it's a, it's some it, it kind of people forget that you know prior to the Romans, and even during Roman times to some extent, that, that Greek was really the language of, of learning. And it remained true in, in Europe, I think, you know, and, and, well, I mean, they were still fighting it out in the 16th century. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> and know. the Romans, you know, they just, you know, even when, uh, for, for a long time under the Romans, Greek remained the language of scholarship, and even as Latin over the centuries began to supplant it, you know, my point is institutionally they did the same thing. The yeah. language changed, but the, the means of projecting hegemony through this institution, you know, we now regard as relatively inert, the yeah. library, um, that remained. Right, right. And so they started gathering willy-nilly in Alexandria, um, and then the notion of a library sort of spread throughout the eastern Mediterranean. The Romans had libraries, didn't they? Yeah, they built them. Uh, they either physically carted off books for their private uh, collections or, more notably, built public libraries. Uh, in, in various parts uh, parts of their realm, mm -hmm. uh, Rome in particular. Um, so you know they knew a good thing when they saw it, and uh, and and that was uh, you know an inseparable part of their cultural policy as well. Mm -hmm. Now these manuscripts were mostly produced on uh, parchment and um, and uh, and and what else? Papyrus. Uh, papyrus. I mean, originally um, it was papyrus because. Um, Above all, in Egypt, because papyrus grows in Egypt. Yeah, right. And, um, uh, the Ptolemies, who ruled Alexandria, put an embargo on papyrus. Uh -huh. so that forced those at rival libraries, for example, at Pergamum, uh, to to adopt a different material. So Pergamum is the origin of our word parchment. Parchment, yeah. Uh -huh. An animal skin. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, 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 I tend not to emphasize the technology aspect in the book. Um, uh -huh. Uh, the, the, whether you're talking about you know, the, the, the physical materials or the or the media that, uh, mm -hmm. that make writing available, because you know again once once the model is established, you, you mm -hmm. gather information in a library, you gather text in a library, 
um, the the, you know, the choice of writing material, the choice of the scholarly language, all these things can be fudged and mm-hmm. changed as, mm-hmm. as centuries went on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a kind of fetishism to collecting things, I think, as well. I mean, once you start, yeah. it, it sort of is a self-reinforcing process. You know, people click. Pez dispensers for no reason other than they have they have five and they want six and when they have yeah. six they want seven more yeah. and and I think I know that I had a book mania myself at one time actually if you were in my office right now you'd be amazed I have no books I gave up on books I sold my book collection but congratulations yeah it's, very, it's really quite liberating the yeah. um the yeah so I, yeah I used to collect books like just crazy uh-huh. and, and not particularly read them I would just collect them. I was, yeah. So I certainly understand the, the mania for that kind of thing. But then, uh, so let's move on a little bit. The, the Roman world collapses in the 5th century. Uh, and then a new, you introduce a new institution, the, the monastery. Maybe you could tell us a little about the origin of that. Yeah, well, the monastery does not or, originate uh, as a response to Rome's collapse. It is not pioneered by um, uh, altruistic, intellectually minded uh, Christians who decide, you know, everything's falling apart. We need to collect it and copy it and save it. I mean, it, it's, it, it illustrates a key point of the book, which is that each institution follows its own logic, its mm-hmm. own uh, rationale. And in mm-hmm. that case, it was spirituality. Mm-hmm. The Christians agonized over whether you know, they should even adopt uh, Greek and Latin learning as a means of, uh, of uh, uh, elucidating their key texts, and eventually that problem was solved by, among others, uh, St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the monks and, and their predecessors, the, the Christians who inhabited the Mediterranean, had several centuries to kind of think about, um, do we engage with urban civilization? Do we retreat from it? Do we engage with Greek and Latin learning? Uh, do we turn our backs on it in, in pursuit of uh, more direct spiritual access to divinity? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so by the, by the time that Rome's collapse was was inevitable they had already crafted a kind of synthesis mm-hmm. uh, which subordinated greek and latin learning to the pursuit of spirituality but gave mm-hmm. it a key place nonetheless mm-hmm. um and so when when you know the visigoths are, are you know and, and and the other barbarians are uh sacking cities left right and center um the monks are, are already prepared uh, for reasons of their own to carry on traditions of learning and, uh-huh. and where there isn't um, a framework for understanding scripture, they bring it with them. They bring uh, even pagan classics, if only as kind of warm-up texts for the real deal, which is the Bible. Uh-huh. Um, and 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 the, the other the other fascinating thing, the thing I find most fascinating about the monasteries is that they are they are programmed to last for centuries. Uh-huh. They're programmed to last indefinitely. There there are places where you are eagerly awaiting the second coming of Christ, but you have no idea if it's going to happen tomorrow or 6,000 years from now. Uh-huh. Um, and so you have to craft a life in such a way that allows you to, to, to plod on in what seems to be uh, a mindless routine, um, but is actually very mindful, very spiritual, uh-huh. uh, very regular and indeed rule-based. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, the monks do funny things. They, 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 um, they, they neglect manuscripts that we would consider priceless today. Yep. Uh, Cicero's The Soul of Yeah, you mentioned that, yeah. Um, they literally write over it. It's called a palimpsest. They, 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 they try to scratch out the, the Cicero's Republic, because after all, the parchment is, is very worth You know, you have to slaughter an animal to get a piece of parchment. Right, yeah. Uh, so why not recycle an old an old pagan text and write, you know, some commentaries on the Psalms? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and we look at them as you look at things like this as an act of vandalism or at best ignorance. You know, the monks were, you know, they, we thanked them for funneling the legacy of classical antiquity into us, but we're sort of irritated that they didn't do a better job. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, but yeah. that's, that's the perspective we inherited from the Renaissance. What, what, what they were doing was, was very well thought out, which was, you know, uh, the, the pagans didn't know the path to salvation. Uh, what, what the monks needed to know was. Um, to, li- to know how to live a, a life in, a, in, a, in an ascetic, monastic Christian community. And mm-hmm. those texts which enabled them to do that, the rule of St. Benedict, for example, mm-hmm. were the ones that they, they preserved and they cherished and they copied over and over again to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One point I want to go back to, because uh, I'm just not clear in my mind about it. I, I know that originally in the um, Syriac and in the Egyptian desert, when uh, these uh, Christians ventured off to live alone, writing wasn't, and reading wasn't originally part of the program at all. Right. Uh, how did it become part of the program? Essentially, they realized that, you know, that you could be a kind of, um, 
it can be an individual aesthetic in which obviously you're not speaking to anyone. You're, for example, sitting atop of a, a pillar, oh, which, yeah. you, um, which is what one guy did. Um, then they realized, you know, that that being a monk, which you know comes from the same word mono, being alone, yeah. one, um, was hard to do except for these kind of spiritual athletes. And so they formed communities. They all go out to the desert together, and you know, almost inevitably, they find need of of uh, not only scripture uh, to educate them on you know, the proper way to live in Christ, but um, uh, they they need ways to regulate themselves. Uh-huh. Uh, to, to prov- I mean, because you're out there in the desert, you're hungry, you're irritable. Um, you're going to engage in some very unchristian behavior when yep. you go clobber your neighbor. Yeah. Um, and so they, you know, they develop a kind of um, rudimentary uh, acquaintance with texts uh, as a means of, of establishing their communities. Uh, and it takes a lot of serious, heavy-hitting argument still uh, from people like Augustine to say, "Hey, let's move beyond that and actually engage, you know, Neoplatonic philosophy and stir that into the mix as well." Mm-hmm. It was originally quite alien to the to the mm-hmm. monastic. And then, if I recall correctly, they organized, I mean, by the, you know, I'm going to make a date up here, by the 8th or the 9th century, they had developed a kind of inter-monastic postal system where they would, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, where they would uh, they would kind of inventory one another's libraries and decide what needed to be copied and then exchange texts. Is that, is that, does that ring any bells? Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they go off and they they often send missions down to uh, down to Rome and places like that. Um, you know, the Irish do this uh, yeah. quite a bit. And on the way, they stop off and they find other other monasteries that they don't think are quite rigid enough, and they tell them how to uh, how to do their job. Um, but yeah, they they. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call it an intermonastic postal system. <laughs> these, um, you know, these 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 pilgrimages that are staggering, and they're you know, and, and when you when you realize that they're they're trekking across a continent which is still very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in order to begin accumulating these texts, so um, you know, even though the monks didn't start out with that intellectual vocation. Uh, certain among them did to kind of um, acquire that that calling mm-hmm. as, as the centuries wore on. Mm-hmm. Well, thank goodness for them. Uh, the, so let's move on to our next institution, and that is yeah. the university itself. Where do universities come from? Universities are guilds. They're uh, trade unions, if you want to call them mm-hmm. that, that form uh, to protect certain occupational groups. Uh, in this case, students who are um, in it in part for the intellectual payoff, uh, but uh, also for uh, to make money in law or medicine or, or even preaching and theology. Um, and they're the ones who really do begin, as, as Europe's civilization revives in the 11th and 12th centuries, uh, to take off across what is, again, still a very dangerous countryside. You know, there are highwaymen, there are, uh, you know, there, there are robbers on the road. And when they do show up in, in towns like Paris and Bologna, the sites of the first universities, they don't have many rights. They, they're, they're foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, if, if if you come from England and you wind up in Italy, some local tavern owner says, "Hey, I, you know, I met a guy from England, and he, you know, he skipped out on his bar tab. So <laughs> why don't you pay?" Yeah. Um, it it's was, funny it that was, you mentioned that because that's what the Russians used to do. You know, f- uh, foreign traders would come and they'd say, "Okay, you come, you come from England? Yeah, yeah, I come from England. Well, there's just an Englishman here, and he didn't pay up, so we're going to put you in prison until you pay." And yeah, he's well, like, but I don't know anything. I don't know this guy. <laughs> yeah, no, whenever you go to a foreign country, you assume that, you know, yeah. like, oh, I've met someone else. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, well, so, you know, eventually the students and the, and the masters, as they were called, um, realized the need to kind of band together in defense of common interests. Uh-huh. And the, the, the word universitas is obviously a Latin word that refers to a corporation, uh-huh. in this case, a corporation of scholars. Um, but you could refer to any occupational group uh, as an universitas. And there's uh-huh. nothing sort of special about scholars originally, and, and it's just because they they tend to be the most uh, among the most mobile, um, along with you know troubadours and crusaders and other people who are just sort of hitting the road in the 12th century. And um, from the from the germs of these kind of occupational unions come full-fledged guilds with the caps and the gowns and the robes and the uh, right. what what today are Staggering privileges. I mean, they had they had legal jurisdiction over themselves, uh-huh. uh, and so if you know if you went out, this was often the case, and got in a barroom brawl and you know uh, fatally injured um, uh, a, a, a townsman, there was actually the possibility that you'd be tried by your own professors. Mm-hmm. 
rather than by the, the, the municipal or the royal authority. I like that idea. Oh, wait, no. I yeah, well, yeah. You know, <laughs> always, you know, they had this kind of boys-will-be-boys boys attitude. Yeah. Of course, it was all men yeah. at the time. And so and this eventually um, caused, the, 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 for example, the king of France to become enraged. That uh-huh. the, these students were literally getting away with murder in some yeah. cases. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the guilds eventually lost jurisdiction over capital crimes and rape and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a pretty, it was a pretty raucous world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was a pretty violent world. Oh, when do they, when do they start to take on a kind of modern institutional form where, you know, and, and I'm thinking like the kernel of the university being the class. That is, you know, you enroll in a class as opposed to just studying with a master. Um, it's, I mean, it's. You, you do that from the beginning because mm-hmm. you can study with many different masters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, again, the sort of the, the format is not so much what interests me as the as, as the reasons it's undertaken. Mm-hmm. And sort of leaping ahead to chapter five in the book, we see the the, the university reinvented after a, a period of decline mm-hmm. and marginalization, and uh, that's when we begin to see a lot of the a lot of the features of contemporary research universities emerge. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the peculiarities of the university? I mean, one of the things I, th- I think that most people would be shocked by is that uh, universities really didn't have libraries. That they, right. yeah, they just that, that wasn't considered to be an important facet. Why is that exactly? Well, again, uh, um, the the heart of learning in the medieval university was was a verbal, particularly uh, mm-hmm. the, the disputation. And this is one thing that I wish we'd bring back, mm-hmm. uh, because the point was, you know, you had to have books. You would commission them from a, a local stationer. Um, a lot of these stationers on the, the the left bank of the Seine in Paris are still there in different forms as mm-hmm. bookstores. 800 and some years later, um, but that was only preparatory to um, a verbal joust. I mean, mm-hmm. these are literally going on at the same time as knights are out there with their lances, mm-hmm. uh, and scholars are doing the same thing. It's a, it's a very masculine, very aggressive culture mm-hmm. where um, uh, you prove yourself by um, essentially, you know, preening like a peacock, mm-hmm. uh, impressing the master, um, and then solving some kind of theological problem. Mm-hmm. Um, to, the, to the satisfaction of, of the you know the assembled masters. Yeah. So um, it's only when libraries, it's only when universities much later come to acquire a research mission that they need libraries mm-hmm. uh, to to collect texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not their original, not originally part of their institutional profile. Yeah, the vestiges of that kind of performative aspect still survive in a couple of places. I mean, we give oral exams to mm-hmm. PhD students, for example, and sometimes we yeah. even give them to undergraduates. So right. there's a we little of that left, yeah. Voce. Pardon me? We even call them viva voce. Yeah, viva uh, voce. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, that's right. So that's, yeah, that's, that's you know, there There are that kind of, sorry, I, I want to call them atavisms. They are, uh-huh. they are the, re, the the remnants of those things. Um, so, right. so in general, what role did the university in this uh, sort of medieval form play in, in the kind of uh, preservation of knowledge? Um, I, I, I would say that they, you know, in every case, uh, you know, no institution has has aimed primarily to preserve knowledge. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the big, uh, the big, uh, uh, what I hope will be a surprising revelation. Mm-hmm. But they all preserve knowledge for some larger end. Mm-hmm. Right? In the case of the university, it's to serve the kind of West's first knowledge economy. Mm-hmm. The time when civilizations are revising and people need lawyers, they need doctors, mm-hmm. they need teachers above all. Mm-hmm. Uh, as heretics begin to sort of have other ideas about Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything that's preserved, everything that's produced, everything that's debated um, is serving that larger end of producing mm-hmm. you know, professional, degreed, credentialed professionals who can, who can sort out, uh, you know, how do you get by with charging interest, even though it's not a biblically mm-hmm. practice, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get rid of these Cathar heretics who are coming in with mm-hmm. these crazy ideas? And um, so that that is how it fit in, uh, and, and every institution serves ultimately the society that uh, that um, uh, you know where it first gestates. Yeah, they're adapted to and emerge from a kind of particular historical context, which is just what we'd expect. Yeah, I mean, right, uh, right. Sort of, yeah, um, yeah. The, the internet does not exist to preserve knowledge. It may right. do that, but it clearly right. doesn't exist for that purpose. So anyway, yeah. let's go on then um, to the Republic of Letters. Uh, what, what is its greater purpose? 
It's been a purpose. It, it's originally um, a, a correspondence network to mm-hmm. knit scholars together after the Protestant Reformation um, tears the, the university world apart, along with the rest of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so universities, you know, continue to exist. We're talking here about basically the Renaissance and the early modern period. Mm-hmm. Universities continue to exist, but they come more become more like ideological boot camps, mm-hmm. Protestant or Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the case, for example, the Jesuit colleges. Um, and, and so, you know, people like Erasmus uh, famously take to writing letters, mm-hmm. saying, you know, hey, Martin, you're, you know, you're my friend Martin Luther. You mm-hmm. know, can't, can't just tone it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they again, uh, they begin to adopt other media like books. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the Republic of Letters comes about as, you know, I hate to, 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 to make these analogies too explicit, but it's like the sort of 16th century Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 a network without nodes. It's, mm-hmm. it's a form in which ideas can be shared once the face-to-face verbal community of the universities becomes polarized by mm-hmm. uh, people like Luther, who are professors. They're great debaters. They're they're great at eviscerating their opponents, mm-hmm. and uh, they begin to do so in the name of one or another version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the surprising story to emerge from that is that that becomes the incubator for what we now call the scientific revolution. Mm-hmm. For the, you know the processing of of you know the Copernican revolution, the the Columbus's explorations, etc. That wasn't its original purpose, but it proved supremely well adapted to to uh, processing new research findings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean I see what you mean because again one of the things I think people are always surprised to learn is that you know in the especially in the 16th century after the Reformation, 17th century, that universities were not places where research was undertaken. Really? Yeah. 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 I mean, and if you think it really had been, yeah. except uh, you know, uh, by hook or by crook, by yeah. individual scholars who who had a vocation for that. Yeah. I mean, if we think about you know sort of the, you know the, the early scholarly societies, um, n- none of them I think were fa- I don't none of them. That's, that's probably an exaggeration. But most of them were not founded at universities, nor did they have institutional right. affiliations right. of that sort. So right. and 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 the people that did the work often did not work in universities. Yeah. Although, although we tend to kind of retrospectively put them in a university context. Yeah, I mean Galileo had a university chair, etc. But you know his real work is done, you know, for example, in the the, the Academia de Lince. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, yeah, these academies become stirred into the Republic of Letters too, as lay people become, you know, essentially disgusted with the professors and the, the you know the the pedantries that they're purveying. Uh-huh. Um, so you get though the academies, museums, books, letters, they're all sort of stirred into this big mix we call the Republic of Letters. Yeah, so it's a kind of a different, uh, there was a, there's a moment at which the library, the monastery, and the university have a certain coherence that the Republic of Letters doesn't. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, at least that's what I thought. I, you know. Yeah, it, well things get complicated as you, as you move out of these, you know, these kind of bricks and mortar institutions. Sure, yeah. Um, and, uh, and that, I think that's what makes them all the more impressive, because the Republic of Letters really begins, um, you know, as as a desperate attempt uh, simply to sit down, write a letter, uh, adopt the, the the conventions of Ciceronian humanist rhetoric, and 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 knit some sort of international scholarly community back together, when you know the big players are literally you know killing each other in mm-hmm. civil war, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, it's. I mean, it's it's a way of repackaging what we already know about the Renaissance and the early modern period, mm-hmm. hopefully heightening uh, the so the drama, not not so much of the intellectual breakthroughs, great as though they may be, you know, mm-hmm. the Copernican system, for example, but the institutional achievement that came about uh, to enable those uh, those inventions to take off, mm-hmm. to enable Galileo's defense mm-hmm. of Copernicus to survive, even as he was being hauled before the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those things were proved unbelievably durable, mm-hmm. um, not so much the academy, but the, certainly the book and the museum. Yeah, no, certainly that's right. Yeah, no, I know that I used to, I, I remember reading articles about the uh, museums of curiosities that people would, yeah, yeah and which are truly incredible. That they're, yeah. they are literally, you know, uh, collections of everything imaginable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and they're quite, it must have been quite wonderful to see. Yeah, and, and we've got great sort of, if you couldn't actually go to one and see that like, they love embalmed crocodiles, for example. You could see them pictured in books uh, with really elaborate copper plate illustrations. Say, well, I couldn't be there, but here's what here's you know here's all these things that they're you know you can't really find in your Ptolemy or your Pliny or your your ancient texts. Uh-huh. 
um, that are coming from from the four corners of the earth. Yeah, no, yeah, no, that, very exciting. Yeah, it is very interesting. So let's let's move on then to our uh, next uh, set of um, really it's a set of institutions, and that is the disciplines themselves, which turn out to be remarkably modern. Yeah, yeah, they. I mean, at some level, this is just a, a natural specialization that, that that fits in any kind of Adam Smith type of uh, market for 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 knowledge, and so people begin to specialize. And the the, the surprising uh, the point there, though, is that. People have expect. There's been a lot of attention lavished, for example, on the on the French encyclopedia. Um, mm-hmm. It provides specialized knowledge to the public in the most high-tech medium available at the time, the printed book. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, not everyone, but many people have fully expected that that a well-educated uh, young man or woman would simply pick up an encyclopedia uh, and sort of cart it around forever, and you know, and uh, and thereby gain education. Of his or her life. Mm-hmm. So, um, what happens surprisingly is the university, not the encyclopedia, becomes redeemed. And so, all of a sudden, you know, as we now know, that you don't you don't get you know a set of quality encyclopedias when you graduate. You you go off to college and uh-huh. go off to university. And the people who first made the university a, a newly re-enlivened site of learning were evangelical Protestants. Uh-huh. Uh, and historically, they're the only people who have a commitment to teaching everybody how to read, uh-huh. to have the Word of God in, 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 in your native language in order to acquire salvation. Mm-hmm. And they come up with seminaries. Seminaries become seminars. Uh, religious instruction gives way to classical languages. And from that seminar model, every discipline we now recognize, all the ologies, all the majors in the research university mm-hmm. is derived. And this is about when? This is around 1800. Okay. Yeah. And 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 the, it starts in, in Germany, which is the unlikeliest of places, mm-hmm. the, the backward, fragmented country. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone would have expected it to be in France or England, the sort of harbingers of, of modernity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it happens at the moment Germany is defeated by Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Napoleon represents utilitarian French knowledge at its, its sort of most extreme. Uh, and the Germans react to being defeated by Napoleon by founding uh, Ivory Tower Haven. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like a dumb move. Right? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the Germans dominate the 19th century. They're, yeah. they're the, uh, you know, everybody flocked. 10,000 Americans go to Germany to, to study at the feet of the greats in yeah. the field of learning. And so they had actually organized the university in faculties at that point, kind of modern faculties. That is... You know, the, the things that we know and love now, chemistry and history and philosophy and these things. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. But they didn't – I mean, the, the brilliant thing, and I wish you know, we still had some of this now, is that they're, they're not organized like guilds. Mm-hmm. It is a free market system where anybody who wants a lecture – if you want a lecture in philosophy at the University of Berlin, you just show up. Uh-huh. And, and you say, I'm going to be giving a lecture, and uh, – what the heck? I'm going to schedule it at the same time as Hegel. That's smarter than him. <laughs> yeah. And this is what Schopenhauer did. He failed. He couldn't actually best Hegel. Yeah. Uh, but the brilliant thing was that, uh, you know, whereas contemporary uh, faculties and departments have, have regained some of the insularity yeah. and the guild-like spirit of their medieval forebears, around about 1800, 1850. It was a, 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 a freewheeling marketplace of ideas, mm-hmm. and, and that's what enables any anybody to specialize at will and to sort of offer a new intellectual product in these systems of mass education that the Germans had pioneered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And who went to university in the 19th century in Germany? Um, anyone who had, uh, you know, sort of graduated with the Abitur, the the, the you know, the, the highest degree of uh-huh. high school learning, uh-huh. um, and, you know, either wanted a professional degree or wanted to get another professorial uh, uh, perch somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea was that, the, you know, this was still a very elite institution mm-hmm. in the sense that not, you know, not everyone by any means aspired to it. But it's it's a, at the same time a meritocracy. You don't mm-hmm. have to be uh, from a wealthy family. It's designed to take kind of poor preacher sons and make them into the kind of shock troops of Germany's modernization. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether mm-hmm. it's civil servants or doctors or lawyers or professors, um, it, it's you know we would call it today a huge investment in, in human capital mm-hmm. uh, in the aftermath of, of Napoleon's defeat of Germany. Mm-hmm. And these were these were state-funded institutions, correct? Yeah, yeah. The state, you know, the the state sets them up. They buy, you know, they they heat the lecture rooms. They pay the salaries of the chaired professors. 
but those who aren't chairs, you know, the, the, the guys who are just starting out, they live off the lecture fees of their students. Mm-hmm. So they are they have an incentive to fill to pack the room, um, and then once they get a certain amount of notoriety, then they can get a chair, which is just you know, then you're set for life. It's mm-hmm. like ten. Mm-hmm. So how does this model spread? I mean, I know a little bit about the American case because, you right. know, I, remember, I think if I recall correctly, it's Johns Hopkins is the first to sort of adopt yeah. this model, and then it spreads throughout the United States. But if you could talk a little bit about how it spreads, I'd be interested. Yeah, well, everyone, you know, the great thing about, about uh, especially the Anglo-American tradition is that, you know, we're, you know they're, we're always reinventing things and calling them by old names. So, yeah. You know, there are plenty of colleges uh, in, in, in the United States already, Harvard, for example. And, um, and then there are a couple of new places, like Johns Hopkins, which are explicitly founded in imitation of the, of the German model. Mm-hmm. But in, in places like Harvard, uh, later on in places like Oxford and Cambridge, they, you know, they begin to adopt Germanic-style uh, research orientation, mm-hmm. even while keeping some of their old traditions, you know, their mm-hmm. old IB and their old... Uh, you know, sherry hours and things like this mm-hmm. that, uh, that make it look like <laughs> continuity. Um, yeah. But, but you know, I, I, I would argue, you know, beneath that continuity, there's a huge revolution going on. And, it, it, it you know, it is essentially from individual pilgrims who go to Germany, you know, um, and, uh, and these could include people who, you know, like university reformers or W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, all uh-huh. types of people who uh, that's where the action is in the 19th century, yeah. believe it or not. And uh, and they come back and they just sort of work their way through the system and they change the norms and um, eventually you get an administrative structure called the department uh-huh. uh, in in the American university which has a certain amount of it's buffered against interference from uh, university administrators who are um, you know in this in that period of the century almost beneath contempt as far as their intellectual yeah. uh, credentials are concerned. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I thought that one, one of the I, I remember one time I read something about history departments circa 1900. And uh, g- generally speaking, it was the case that people studied history uh-huh. and that was it. You right. didn't, there was no differentiation. You didn't say yeah. German history, Polish history or Chinese yeah. history. You said history. <laughs> and I always well, thought that was very liberating. <laughs> yeah. No, I, mean, I, I wish we could go back to yeah. one of the things I'm trying to do with yeah. the book is, is, is Transgress these, these. Yeah, you and me, you and me both. Yeah, yeah. But, but I thought know, that, I thought that was ex- yeah, it was extraordinarily yeah. refreshing that they did, that they did that that they thought in that way. So what, do you, could maybe I don't know if you know this or not, but at what point did um, at what point did uh, the um, did the actual disciplines within history develop and it kind of assume their modern form? I, I really don't know the answer to that question. Um, you know, I would say circa 1900, but I would say also that it's, you know, it's, it's in the dynamic of any large marketplace to, to produce subspecialists and sub-subspecialists mm-hmm. and so on. So, um, you know, there's, you know, as soon as any one person decides, I'm going to be a Polish historian, not just a general historian, mm-hmm. and attracts a sufficient number of acolytes to train them and send them off to jobs elsewhere, yeah. then you've got a sub-discipline going. Yeah, no, I think that's and right. And the conferences and the journals just kind of follow in the wake of that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, just to digress for a second, I, I, I think I'm a little older than you are, but I know that when I, when I had written my sort of second book on early modern Russian history, and, you know, and then the department came to me and they said, what's your next project going to be? I just said I don't want to study early modern Russian history anymore. <laughs> I know enough about it. I know everything yeah. I need to know about this. And actually, in the German system, they do it a little bit differently because one of the things they say is that you can't – you have to work across fields or you have to work yeah. across time periods. Right. And, and we just don't do that here. I mean, if yeah. you're an early modern Russian historian to start with, that's the way you end. And I I didn't have the you know sort of stick-to-itiveness to do it. Um, and I, I find it – like, for example, my wife, the mathematician, I tell her that this is the way the historical discipline works, and she's just right. amazed yeah. that you would yeah. study one thing your whole life. Right. And i got to say that, I think that's part of the incentive structure that's still around yeah. of all the disciplines. You know, you, 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 attain, you attain stature by, by, by depth rather than breadth. Yeah, well, um, yeah. I mean, I left academia because of it. I just couldn't do it anymore. And then, I mean, I came back kind of by happenstance, but uh-huh. under a condition in which I could actually study something a little bit different. I still do right. Russian history, but I also, you know, have irons uh, in other fires, which yeah. 
I I don't know. I just I just couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I hear you. I, I thought about leaving academia many times on that. Yeah, because I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, but which isn't to say early modern Russian history is not a great field. It really is, and the people who do it are absolutely fantastic. It's just that the way the historical disciplines are structured. I, I don't know. I I just found myself answering the same questions over and over again. Yeah. And yeah. I, I I never heard anything new. Yeah. But I mean, again, maybe that's a peculiarity of my own discipline, and maybe American historians or something don't have this problem. But you know, I I think it's true. Uh, you know, probably of everyone, even in different fields as well. Uh, yeah. And different certain fields are better at bridging those gaps. You know, those those um, those problems than others. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. But anyway, here at Iowa, I'm very blessed. They let me do pretty much what I want, which is it's extraordinarily uh-huh. nice. We have one uh, more set of institutions to talk about, and that is uh-huh. uh, the laboratory. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the origins of that? Yeah, the laboratory originates in the sort of academies of the Republic of Letters, and later on, in the you know the seminars in chemistry and, and other fields in the in the research university or in the discipline. Uh-huh. Um, but they, they you know they have to they battle this problem that the, especially the classical scholars in the research university, the scholars of Greek and Latin, don't really think that um, what they're doing in these laboratories amounts to knowledge. You know, they're making soap. Uh, you know, they're, not, they're not doing something worthy of yeah. the ancients, um, and it takes a long time, you know, before people like Pasteur say, "Well, you know, I may be doing this sort of, you know, grubby practical work, but you know, I can actually cure people who are suffering disease." And you know, how much can your Plato and your Aristotle do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so the laboratory battles for a place within the disciplines, and 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 eventually triumphs completely. Mm-hmm. Um, when they when they get all their different departments and and, and they triumph uh, first of all by manipulating uh, nature within physical confined spaces you know the the rooms where laboratory science goes on uh, but then they you know they go on to conquer the rest of the world in many ways as well um, mm-hmm. what I argue in the book is that the, the late 19th century the product the, the processes of industrialization urbanization they spawn new public spaces that laboratory scientists um, and their imitators could could then begin to control things mm-hmm. like the public school, mm-hmm. um, the factory floor, the office building, um, the immigrant slum. None of these spaces had existed before, at least not on the scale that um, industrial modernity created them. Mm-hmm. And you needed a way, for example, in the public school uh, to shunt the uh, what were called feeble-minded uh, off into special education. Mm-hmm. Um, and you needed an IQ test to do that. Mm-hmm. The guy who came up with the IQ test said, you know, let's not call them feeble-minded. Let's call them something more respectful, like morons. That mm-hmm. was his, his coinage. <laughs> yeah. Don't call my son feeble-minded. Call him a moron. moron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's funny. So, yeah, they, I mean, they go through the management consultants, our, yeah. uh, you know, man, our, our laboratory scientists who, who play in the workplace. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, the laboratory, this is what the book ends with, essentially, is the laboratory is looming ever larger uh, as an institution, not just in the hard sciences, but in in, in society at large. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't see any end to that, uh, that sort of secular trend, at least not yet. No, I don't either. Absolutely. I think that's true. I mean, there's more and more emphasis on, on data gathering and manipulation. I mean, that, right. that pretty much is, I mean... I, you know, one of the things I also do here is teach graduate students, and I tell uh-huh. them that that is sort of what we do. We, yeah. you know, uh, among many other things, we gather data and manipulate it, um, yeah. and for good or ill. I don't know if I'm making better people or not, but I am <laughs> gathering data and manipulating it. So, yeah, the sp- it, it's not for you know, it's not for it's not for no reason that the spreadsheet, which yeah. is a peculiar thing, yeah. has be- has become you know a c- kind of common coin throughout America. Everyone yeah. knows what a spreadsheet is. I don't yeah. think in the 18th century people knew what a ledger was. Yeah, they, well, no they, they, they did, but they, they were, you know, they restricted it to certain things like commerce, you yeah. know, that, that for which it was very well adapted. But, yeah, uh, it's funny because I used to work at a magazine, and, and you know, magazine of all places, you know, and uh, I became known as the guy in the office that knew how to use Excel. Uh-huh. That was my purchase at the place. <laughs> I was the guy who knew how to use Excel at a magazine. You know, it was a really strange thing. Yeah. So no, yeah. I, I, I quite agree with you about the laboratory in that way. Well, you close the book with some some words about the internet. Maybe you could talk a little about that. That. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see the internet as in itself uh, a technological revolution, mm-hmm. uh, or at least not on the scale of these big institutions that mm-hmm. I've been talking about. It's it's clearly uh, an amazingly inventive and useful technology. I see it um, rather as the latest. 
you know, perhaps greatest sign of the laboratory's institutional ascendancy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the many things the laboratory does is to create information as, as to divorce um, facts from their from their lived context mm-hmm. and to enable them to be transmitted as electronic pulses over fiber optic mm-hmm. cable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has led, you know, to, to, to all the things the Internet can do, including, you know, attempts to kind of revive the, the dream of ancient Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see the Internet less uh, on its own terms as a technology. I mean, throughout the book, I de-emphasize technology. Um, I don't talk about parchment and papyrus. I don't actually talk very much about the invention of a book, which mm-hmm. is used to be seen as uh, as creating a revolution in consciousness. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that happens every time a new institution comes along is that it it repurposes and supersedes its predecessor. Mm-hmm. So just as the monastery absorbed libraries and books and made them serve not a political end but a religious end. Mm-hmm. Um, surprisingly enough, the laboratory is is in the midway through the process of of gobbling up. Uh, and repurposing the disciplines in the research university. Mm-hmm. And all of us who sort of labor in the uh, humanistic core of the research university, I'm not saying that in 20 years we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be uh, you know, uh, the indentured servants of uh, you know, <laughs> men and women in, in lab coats and safety goggles, but I think that what, what our society demands out of knowledge is, is increasingly be provided by the laboratory and not by the the classical, especially the humanistic discipline, mm-hmm. and uh, and we're all going to have to adapt as a result. It's funny you mentioned that because I was just doing some writing myself, uh, and actually this doesn't quite fit your chronological framework, but it's it's I think evocative at least. You know, in the 1950s, public intellectuals wrote books like The Lonely Crowd yeah. and The One Dimensional Man and uh-huh. things like this, and now public intellectuals write books like The Tipping Point, yeah, and yeah. The Wisdom of Crowds. Yeah. These are extraordinarily different public intellectual books. Yeah. 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 W- one, you know, the, the, the latter of them are really about kind of, you know, they're like public goods experiments upon which entire books have been written. Um, they're, yeah. they're, they're about marketing, really. And, uh, and, you know, The Lonely Crowd and The One-Dimensional Man were not about marketing. <laughs> right, right. Well, b- both in their content and in their production. I mean, not only are they, are they about you know, large-scale laboratory-like phenomena, like yeah. the tipping point. Yeah. But they're in this feedback loop with marketing. That you know, the content becomes tweaked and adjusted in response to, to reader demand. Yeah. And the marketing of the books is a, is it itself a, a grand-scale social science experiment. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's much more profitable than social scientists who work. In the yeah. No, absolutely. No, no question about it. No, really, it's true. So I do kind of wonder about the future of our own project because, I mean, I know that I've always been quite an empiricist myself and a kind of unreconstructed positivist, but uh-huh. I. You know, I, uh, your book gave me pause, actually, to think how I had been. I was sort of in this stream of laboratory science, and that I really do treat it in a kind of, with a scientific mindset. I really do. You know, I, I treat it just the way, you know, that I would treat any other data. But um, it's really a very different project. And I also really like what you say about, you know, each succeeding univers- uh, institution uh, sort of, uh, um, uh, how to best put it, kind of enfolding the one that came before it and adapting it to its purpose, because I think that's yeah. absolutely right. And it was it was it was a struggle for me to come to that conclusion because um, I'd gone along throughout the whole project thinking that each old institution simply stays in place. I mean, after all, we still have libraries. In fact, we still even have monasteries. Yeah. And and the implication of what I ultimately argued was that you know you and I are condemned to at best second-rate citizens. Yeah. No, we are. No, it's true. Complete I, marginalization. Yeah. It, is, it is very depressing, but um, yeah. No, it's. Um, it provides a framework for what we're living in now. I think. Yeah. No, I think it provides a nice. Uh, it offers us a nice perspective on on what's really going on. I mean, it's in a certain sense, it's a cautionary tale because what what your book says is we actually live in a kind of discrete moment. We don't think that we do, but it will also pass, and some other yeah. institution will come, and it will absorb the institutions that we have currently invented, and they will be unrecognizable in 150 or 200 years. If we were yeah. to be flashed forward 150 years to you know whatever institution we live in now, it will have been evolved or adapted to whatever institutional context exists in 150 years. And yeah. we'll be strangers in that strange place. So and if historians could ever predict what's coming next, we'd be the richest people. Yeah, on no, that's no question about that. It's, it's unpredictable. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. I actually wrote a book where I predicted something once, and um, 
Needless to say, I was wrong. Just <laughs> because <laughs> that thing. Well, Ian, we've really spent a lot of your time, and we uh, appreciate having you on the show very, very much. It's you know, it's a terrific book. Um, we'd like to close with uh, our traditional question, which is, what are you working on now? Well, I, you know, I decided that 2,300 years of Western history wasn't enough, so uh-huh. I'm going to try to do in some way the rest of the world next. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the things that I folded in, began to fold into this one, is, is attention to China and India and the Islamic world, uh, which each possess their own knowledge uh, uh-huh. traditions, and that remain vital down to the 19th century. It's only in the last 100 or so years that each has in its own way contended with or even yielded to the Western model. So uh-huh. um, within that broad framework, I've got a, you know, obviously the practitioner world history needs to figure out some way of wrestling a, an absurdly large topic into into the proper uh, shape and size. Yeah, we should so, talk more about this because it's exactly what I'm wrestling with too. Because I've started yeah. to work more and more in world history, and uh, really, how to shape it is a is a is an extraordinarily important question because we don't know yet. Um, we right. don't even really know what the data is yet. I'm, I'm, I've been really wrestling with that. I mean, what what makes a particular datum world historical as opposed to say German historical or something? I yeah. I, I can't even figure that out yet. <laughs> and, and the amount of specialized expertise you need to do uh, by any one of these sub uh, sub specialties. Yeah, is, no, it's it's you know, it's a a, it's a daunting task, but I think it's an intellectually very rich task. And I should say that all historians in the United States and the world should be very grateful to you. For taking it on, because you know right. this is—it's a, a real honestly. No, this is a—it's a really terrific book. I—I'd I, like to you know, congratulate you and Lisa on it, and I hope that it uh, is tremendously successful. I really do. I hope it reaches a, reaches a, a wide readership. So anyway, thanks very much for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, take care now. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ian McNeely about his new book, Reinventing Knowledge from Alexandria to the Internet co-authored with Lisa Wolverton. It's recently appeared from W.W. Norton. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope that you have a good week. Music